Well, welcome, you guys. Uh, please have a seat. Uh, I feel like I'm in the Shekinah glory of sunshine today. Um, but I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leeward campus of uh, Christ Community. We're really glad you're here. And I don't know if you didn't turn your clock back or not, but I'm glad you're here. So I told the first service it was our first Easter sunrise service early. Um, but as early as I can remember, I've been a Beatles fan. Any Beatles fans out here? Yes. And as a young boy, I remember uh, listening to uh, the Abbey Road album, which is one of the most awesome albums they ever did, on my brother's stereo turntable. Remember those? Some of you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about. And I remember hearing the songs of the Beatles and uh, hearing a little of the scratching of the needle in the vinyl, some of the distortion and hum and all that that came with it. But I thought, hey, that's the way Beatles sound. It was pretty cool. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, until my oldest brother got an eight-track tape player. Some of you are laughing. Oh, what is this? Um, an eight-track tape player in his 57 Chevy hopped up. And I won't go into all the 360 carbs and all that. I mean, you know, it was cool. But I remember listening to the Beatles on the eight-track tape. Gosh, it was amazing. I could hear him better. But, you know, the eight-track player didn't live very long, if you remember history. Uh, it also shifted songs in the middle of the tracks now and then. Some of you are again, I know. Um, but then the cassette tape came on. And the cassette tape was convenient. It had more durability. You know, you could hear things better. So I thought that was the best it could ever get. I could hear the music of the Beatles like, this is it. That is until the digital, yeah, the digital revolution. Compact disc. Oh. I remember the first time I heard, I mean, I'd read about the digital revolution, but I had never heard a compact disc. And when I heard the Beatles on compact disc, it's like I'd never heard them before. It was like all the sound of the needle scratching on the vinyl and all the hum of tape and all the speed issues, all of a sudden it evaporated into thin air. This was how the Beatles were to sound. And what I discovered in my love of the Beatles is that, you know, I really don't want to go back to the old way of listening to them on a vinyl record or a cassette tape or an A-track. How about you? There's music I hear better now. And what is true in matters of music, that the new is better than the old, is also and can be true in matters of faith. And this is the idea that the Hebrew writer gives us in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Um, this is the book that we are exploring. If you're visiting this morning, our church family across our campuses are unpacking a New Testament book that is truly awesome. We may say that. And uh, this is the book we're looking at. Now, the new and better way it's what the book of Hebrews describes. It's one of the main ideas of the book. And that is not to say that God changes or the music of grace and truth changes, but how we experience Messiah Jesus and our Christian faith has changed. And this is one of the main themes of this amazing book. Now, the writer of Hebrews allows us to hear the good news message of the gospel of grace with pin drop digital clarity. And the question for us as thoughtful listeners and readers of the text of sacred scripture is, do we hear the good news message and are we being transformed by it? Do we hear it and are we being transformed by it? Some of us are fans of one of the finest literary writers in American history, Flannery O'Connor. Anybody a Flannery O'Connor fan? Amazing writer. She spoke a lot about spirituality, actually, but she said this. 
Flannery O'Connor said this. She said, to the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. Large and startling figures. If we understand the brilliant writer of the book of Hebrews, this is what he's doing for us today. He doesn't want us to miss it in hearing or seeing, and he gives us large and startling figures. So if you brought a Bible with you, most of us do, at least on our phone, or if you have a paper copy, please turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, as I alluded to, as a church family, we are looking at this marvelous book of Hebrews and unpacking it. And I want you to know that this was originally a first century sermon. It was so brilliant and so bright and so amazing, it turned viral in the first century. It became a circulating letter. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish audience, to a Jewish group that had come to faith in Jesus the Messiah. They had embraced the gospel. But they were beginning to drift. Some major metaphor of his language here. And they wanted to sort of go back to the old. Wasn't the old better? So the writer of Hebrews will say, no, the old is not better. It's foolish. It's not only foolish, it's perilous to your soul. Last Sunday, yes, I was kind of the Maytag repairman. (laughs) You remember that old commercial? Some of you are here, but I know we had a big storm. But let me just say, last week as I communicated, we are in the section of Scripture, section of Hebrews, that if you're a skier, I want you to think of it this way. (coughs) Downhill skiing is a big thing, spring break, right? I mean, a lot of us are skiers. And when you're a skier, you know that at the top of the hill, you are given a code, a symbol that tells you what kind of slope you're about to encounter. So in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, I want you to see a code on top the slope. The code is not a bunny hill. It's not a green. It's not a blue. It's not a black. (laughs) It's a double black diamond. Chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. And perhaps it's some of the most steep and invigorating literary train of all the New Testament, and you are in it, and we're in it. There are two words for a double black diamond, whether you're skiing or you're entering this brilliant literature, and that is steep and deep. Steep and deep. So will you join me and enter into this invigorating, invigorating slope? We want to look at this text, and the way to understand it, perhaps, is to understand its flow from chapter 7. In the original manuscript of the Greek, there's no chapter breaks. We have those for convenience to help us navigate through the complexity. And in chapter 7, we noticed last week that Jesus is the good advocate. He's the better high priest. He is the good lawyer, we said, that everyone needs. And chapter 7 unpacked Jesus being the true and better lawyer, the true and better priest. He is permanent. He is powerful. He is perfect. And then in the opening five verses of chapter 8, it's a continuous theme. And that is Jesus has a unique place among all priests. He is in the throne room of heaven. So the uniqueness of Jesus, his priesthood, his advocacy is how we enter into this text. But that's not where we're going to focus this morning. That's the backdrop. If you have your Bible open, we're going to press into verses 6 through 13. And what we need to understand as thoughtful readers of the text, as thoughtful listeners, is that chapter 8 is a literary midrash. Midrash is not something I said last week you get on your tummy, (laughs) you know, when you uh, eat something that doesn't like you. Uh, A midrash is a literary uh, framework or literary structure that gives commentary on sacred text. It gives more illumination. So in chapter 7, verse 22, this is the marker that we have to understand to understand this text. 722, Jesus says, 
or uh, Hebrews says, Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. So chapter 8 helps us to understand what that means. Does that make sense? And the word covenant is really not a word we use very much, right? How many of us, you know, have said covenant this week? We just don't, whether our friends at school or our colleagues at work or our spouse at home or our friends. Covenant is important. It's a very important idea in the biblical thread of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to the last book of Revelation. We're going to press more into that, but what I first want you to understand when you enter this text is that the writer is trying to raise an underlying question and then answer it. Again, he is speaking this as a brilliant persuasive rhetorician. So the structure flows around this underlying question. What is the underlying question of this text? It is this. Why, he is saying, why is the new way or the new way better than the old way? Why? And his persuasive answer with a rhetorical knockout punch of one-two, just like that, is the old way didn't work. And the new way really works. So if you are framing the scaffolding of your mind, you're listening or you're taking notes, that's the structure of this text. The old way didn't work, and the new way really works. Okay, so let's press into the first part. The old way didn't work is found in verses 6 through 7. Let me just read this text and follow along if you have it open. I hope you do as thoughtful listeners of the text. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since he enacted it on better promises. Now notice, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what he's doing here is he's contrasting two covenants, the old and the new, first and second. Do you see that? Now, let's probe two words that we need to grasp to understand what's going on here. They can be confusing. The first one is covenant. You'll notice in chapter 8 as you read this, I hope you follow along in your Lenten devotional as you prepare for the glory of Easter. Um, You will notice the word covenant. It's splattered all over chapter 8. But you'll also notice something that gives you chalkboard dissonance, and that is the word faulty. So let's press into those two words just a bit. First, covenant. If we follow the Old Testament through, we understand that the covenant, a covenant, had two threads of meaning woven together. Or another metaphor might be uh, two uh, sides of the same coin, same coin, covenant coin. Um, But the head side means one thing and the tail means one thing, and together we have the whole picture. And the head side is simply this, that a covenant is a solemn oath of permanence. It is solemn, binding, and permanent. When we flip it over on the tail side, we also see that a covenant is not only a binding oath, it is an intimate friendship. And I don't want anyone to miss this. It's sort of like a BFF, best friend forever. Deeply embedded in covenantal language is intimacy. Now, we see this in many places. If you've read the Old Testament, you know one of the most famous covenants of relationship is Jonathan and David, 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. And it says, the text says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul, and he covenanted. So I want us to grasp this truth as we look at Hebrews, that covenants are much more about relationships than about rules. It's more about relationship than rules. Now, the first implicit glimpse we get of a covenant in the Scriptures is Genesis 2, when the Creator God forms His perfect design and His character and embeds it in the covenant of sacred marriage. It's the end of chapter 2. Adam and Eve are married, and it's the sacred covenant of marriage. That's the first implicit understanding of covenant from which all covenants will flow. 
And we know that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, again, if you've read it, several places this covenant language appears to Noah, and there's a sign of the covenant, the rainbow, and then to Abraham, and there's a sign of circumcision, and then to David and Moses and then David. And so covenant is a big deal in the Old Testament. But in our cultural context, covenant is very foreign to us, is it not? I mean, we think of contracts. We live in those, don't we? (laughs) Some of us might have made, as a student, contract with our parents about grades, right? There are consequences if we don't get them. Many of us have entered into a contract to buy real estate or buy a property. Um, And um, sometimes we enter into many contracts in our business engagements every day or throughout the week. We, We sign a big contract, or if you're a recent Royals player, you sign a contract for $14 million. That was pretty good, wasn't it? I mean, that's a pretty good picture, right? So we think of contracts, but covenants are something very different. And I deal with covenants. I guess that pastors are kind of a weird group. Uh, I deal with them often because I do lots of marriage ceremonies, and that's a covenant. A young couple will come down the aisle, stargazing, right? Awesome, which I love. And they will stand before me and their witnesses, and they will say some words that are a solemn oath, and they will say, tell death do us That marriage covenant is a a solemn oath until death, and it also frames a unique intimacy of a relationship, unlike anything else humans experience. So you have both a binding oath and an intimate friendship. Now, we may be married. We may want to be married someday. We may have been married. We don't have to be married to understand what's going on here intuitively because we know at some level every one of us sitting here young and old, that there is a difference between a social contract and a sacred covenant. We feel bummed when someone doesn't follow through on their contract. Someone builds our house, someone doesn't follow through on a business deal, that's a bummer. But we also know that it's very different when a covenant is deteriorating or broken in a marriage Not fulfilling a contractual obligation in our business world is one thing. But to feel the stinging pain of marital betrayal and the deep wounds of divorce is perhaps the greatest, or if not the greatest, one of the greatest pains of the human soul because of the nature of the covenant. God often communicates his love to us in covenantal language through the Old Testament. In fact, the church is described as the bride of Christ, the covenant of Christ. So a covenant is not just a contract on steroids. It's in a complete class by itself, anchored in creation design and the character of God. So now, how do we understand this awkward phrase, this awkward word? If you've studied the Bible a lot, you go, wow, this word faulty and faultless. Do you see it in the text? Now, what does it mean that the old was faulty? We know Jesus affirmed the old in the New Testament Gospels that the law, the Mosaic law, was something that was good. He came to fulfill it. Rabbi Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes the law, the old covenant, as a tutor to us, to Christ, to, uh, to be a mirror to God's character in our sin. So the Hebrew writer is not saying God is faulty. And we'll understand in a moment what is at fault here. But we need to understand that the language of the old and the new is like the language of one step, two step in God's plan. 
His covenantal plan was to show that the old covenant with all its rules could not transform us from the inside out. From the inside out. Very key to understand this text. The old covenant could not restore broken fellowship. It could not restore a broken image-bearing person made in the image of God. It could not restore us to blamelessness, to new creation wholeness. The old covenant was never designed to do that. It couldn't do that. It could only create external conformity. It couldn't create internal transformation. It couldn't change you and me from the inside out. In a word, the old way didn't work, but it pointed to the new way that does work. Now, if you were listening to this speaker or reading this letter and you had a Jewish background and were steeped in the Old Testament, you might need a little bit of uh, heavy-handed persuasion. So what does the writer do? It's what you do if you give a speech, right? In school and in class, you pull out a quote. Someone who has a lot of authority in your listener's ears. So what the Hebrew writer does is he pulls out a quote from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah. He's saying, Jeremiah said the same thing I'm saying. So you listen to him, now listen to him. Listen to him good. In fact, what is stunning for us is that the Hebrew writer includes now Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34, almost verbatim, and it's a translation dynamic, and it's the longest quote in the New Testament of an Old Testament writer. So you go, why? You should say why. And there's no commentary around it to explain it. Very unusual. (laughs) So what this guy does is he pulls out this dynamite quote from this dynamite person who was the prophet Jeremiah when Israel's at the lowest point in their history and says, just listen to Jerry. (laughs) Just listen to him. And that's what he does. He says, here it is. Don't listen to what I'm saying if you don't want to. Listen, listen to what Jeremiah says. And what he's doing is he's finding common ground with his listeners. And he knows that his listeners, their historical identity is centered in this idea of covenant. All the Old Testament, God's loyal love. They're a covenant people. It'd be just like someone saying, our American history, if you're American here today, our American history, our human identity, our common identity as American citizens is tied into certain documents and certain ideas like self-governance. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? So that's what he's doing. So now look with me at verses 8 through 9. He says, for he finds fault with them when he says, now notice here's Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now notice, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, not like Moses. Notice, this is where the fault lies, this fault language is not impugning God, but notice what the text says. For they did not continue in my covenant. It was the people's issue. And I I showed no concern for them. Now he has unpacked the old way didn't work, okay? So we're convinced. Now he says, but the new way really works. Listen to Jeremiah. So look at verses 10 through 12 in your text. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now again, this is spoken hundreds of years before Jesus came, which speaks a lot about the authority of Scripture, doesn't it? Declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah is saying, as he looks through the corridor of time, down the future, when Messiah Jesus will come and usher in the new covenant, he's saying the future is going to be a better way. What is this good news of the new covenant that the Messiah would inaugurate? And don't miss this. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the new covenant for all of us is that this radical change would not be an outside-in, it would be an inside-out. There would be no new set of rules to obey. There would be a distinctly new kind of relationship to enjoy with God himself. Wow. And what the people needed and what you and I need are not a new set of more rules, but a completely new heart. And that's the point of this text. There has to be an internal transformation. And it radically changes us, you and me, from the inside out. Three reasons or three ideas around this radical change are unpacked here through the lips of Jeremiah. That is, the gospel, the new covenant, transforms how we think, how we love, and how we know. How we think, how we love, and we know. We, we think differently. Look at this first in verse 10. Jeremiah says, I will put my laws into their minds. In this particular original text, the mind is deeply emphasized. I don't want to miss you to miss that and the order in which this is communicated. He says, in the new covenant, in a new better way, our minds will be changed. We will think differently. And the law here is a picture of all of God's revelation that is not accessed by reason alone, but by God's revelation. And you may be here this morning, and I am really glad you're here, but you don't buy the Christian faith, at least yet. Maybe you're not a Christian yet. You may be filled with all kinds of intellectual doubt whether this stuff really is the deal. And you may have convinced yourself that once you get all your questions answered, every intellectual question answered, then you can believe in this Jesus guy. Perhaps you've come to believe that, or someone's told you, that to be a Christian, you really have to put your brain on the shelf. Now, let me say it very clearly. Now, while your questions really matter and your intellect really matters, this text tells us, and the Christian faith tells us, that it is faith in Jesus that opens our minds to a whole new panorama of knowledge. It is HD clarity. It corresponds to reality. It opens our understanding. See, it is not that we must know so that we can truly believe. We must truly believe so that we can truly know. The most open-minded person is not the one who will believe anything, but the person whose mind is open to the one who knows everything, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most brilliant being of the universe. He is the person of truth. Hear me carefully, the Christian faith never dumbs us down. It wisens us up. The gospel renews and restores how we think. It radically changes how we see the world. It brings intellectual integrity and coherence to the human mind at the highest level. It clears the intellectual cobwebs so spun by sin and our self-absorption. 
the depraved distortions that sin has brought to your mind and mine. Jeremiah says the new covenant, the gospel, the goodness of the gospel changes how we think. But notice it also changes how we love. We love differently. Notice verse 10. He says, I'll write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they will be my people. The language is one's affections. It's what we truly love. The human heart, the old covenant, it's religiosity, it's external conformity, it's moralism. Set all kinds of religious rules that masked the heart of the matter, which was the matter of the heart all along. The new way would be a better way because it would reorder the loves of your heart and mine. More rules will never cut it, but a new heart will. Even though I was a young boy, when I first heard the good news of the gospel, when I first understood at eight years of age the new covenant, when it was preached and taught to me, and when I embraced Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, I remember even early, and if you're younger, you'll notice this text talks about knowing God from the least to the greatest. The least language of the Greek text is the youngest, the most insignificant in culture. If you are young or you are old, the gospel is accessible to you. You can know God whether you are young or old. Whatever your past, the least to the greatest, whatever your pedigree, whatever your intellect, whatever your education, whatever your wealth, the new covenant is accessible to you. The gospel is accessible to you to know him, to know Jesus. I remember as a kid, Trusting Christ as my Savior, and I remember very early on being changed from the inside out. I remember loving differently, loving Jesus differently, loving His Word. I remember loving the church that I was a part of differently. I remember loving my brothers and sisters differently. Not perfectly, but differently. See, it wasn't something I brought to my heart, it was something now. It flowed from my heart. When we embrace the gospel, if you've embraced the gospel, you live in new covenant reality. You love God differently. You can't help it. You love the church differently. You cherish it. You love the scriptures differently. You love your families differently. You love your parents, your siblings differently. You love your friends at school and at work differently. You love those who reject you and reject your views differently. Maybe even have a different political persuasion. You love your city differently. You love your money differently. You love your fellow church members differently. And Jesus called this marvelous heart transformation a new birth. In our Lenten devotional, and again, I hope you'll pick one up, There's a wonderful quote here by a South African writer named Andrew Murray of the 18th and 19th century. He he bridged him. And I want to read this quote. Um, It was so beautifully laid out. And I think it's up here for you as well. In the promises of the new covenant, as we find them in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it is manifest that God's great object in salvation is to get possession of the heart. The heart is the real life with what a heart With the heart, a man, you can see a person loves and wills and acts. The heart makes the person. God made man's heart for his own dwelling, that in it he might reveal his love and glory. God sent Christ to accomplish a redemption by which man's heart could be won back to him. Nothing but that could satisfy God. And Jeremiah, earlier in the text before 31, says to all of us that the heart, your heart, my heart, Pastor Tom's heart, is deceitful beyond all else. Who can understand it? Your heart and my heart is the greatest idol factory in the universe. 
And yet the new covenant speaks to the need and the possibility and the power and the transformation of a new heart that God can give you through Jesus Christ shed atoning blood on the cross. We not only think differently, we love differently, and notice how the text progresses, we know differently. Verse 11 gives us a new kind of knowing the gospel brings. It's not just information, it's relationship with Jesus that transforms all of us. Have you ever played the game? Maybe I'm kind of weird. <laughs> you probably figured that out. But uh, <laughs> you played the game at, a, at you know, an icebreaker or just like someone you want to meet. You ever played that game? Who's the person you want to meet in history, a writer, a great statesman, a great musician? Like, who would you want to meet and why? And uh, I've often played that game, and I'm reminded when I play that game that there's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Differing, difference from reading about someone to actually meeting them in person. And one of the people I would love to meet, I've never met him, and if I met him, I'd tell you because I'd brag about it, is you two is Bono. I'd just love to meet this guy. But it's very different to read about someone, to be a fan of someone, to know about someone than to know him personally or her personally. And this is the language of Jeremiah, the new covenant. We will not just know about God as in the Old Testament. From a distance, we will know him intimately because Jesus is drawn near to us. God is drawn near to us, and we are to draw near to him. Notice also in this text the beauty of verse 12, that we experience true and lasting forgiveness rather than guilt and alienation from God. In his mercy and grace, the text says he remembers our sin no more. That doesn't mean he all of a sudden stops his omniscience. What it means is that in Christ, because of what Christ has done on that cross, because it is finished, his substitutionary, propitiary, that means satisfactory atonement of his blood, has now said that he paid it all for you and me. And there's nothing we can do on our own. And he will never bring it up again when we trust him, ever. It's finished. Our new covenant with God, our new covenant reality, the gospel, is not about conforming obligation. It's about a continuing intimate friendship. And notice the night before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his most close earthly friends, his disciples, in that upper room. And he says something that's so profound that we often miss as he is about to not only wash their feet, but bring the bread and the cup. In John chapter 15, listen to this verse. We often scoot over. Jesus communicates the massive transformational shift of a new heart and new intimacy with God that we were created to have because he has come. And he says in verse 14, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, servants live by obligatory rules. Friends live by intimate friendship. Notice how verse 13 says, the old way is gone, it's obsolete, the new way has come. And the scriptures tell us it's not just a new and better way. Jesus says it is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The new and better way is the way, and Jesus has made that possible for you and me. So the question for us, and the Hebrew writer in chapter 10 will call it the living way, the new living way. Are you living? Are you experiencing the new way? Are you hearing the beauty of the gospel music and digital clarity this morning? Or is it muffled and distorted? Have you embraced the gospel? 
Are you trying to please God and live by rules, ethical or religious? Or is your life being transformed from the inside out? Because God, through the gospel and through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, has invaded your heart and you are not the same anymore. Scriptures say Jesus paid it all for you. He did it all. There's nothing you can do to bridge the gap. Jesus shed his blood for you, paid it all. Scriptures say that it is by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. The gospel of grace transforms you and me from the inside out. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel, the gospel, the good news of the new covenant is the very power of God that arranged the atoms of the universe. And it is that power to transform your heart and mind. It is the only thing that can do it. Not religiosity, not moralism, not rules. The only thing that can give you a new heart is Jesus Christ in his crucified and resurrected glory. So do you know the gospel? Have you embraced the gospel? Are you living the gospel? Is the gospel transforming your life each and every day? Are you thinking, loving, and knowing differently? Is the gospel transforming you from the inside out? How you think, what you think, how you love. Are you going through the motions? Have you been in church so much of your life that you know about God, but you don't know Jesus personally? Are you going through a plastic faith? We talked about that the other a couple weeks ago. Or the, is your faith genuine? Is the fruit of the Spirit transforming you? Is it increasingly evident in how you deal with your friends at work, at school, your life, at home, your marriage, your friends? And if you're not seeing the fruit of your life being transformed and your heart being transformed, you have to ask the question, what is the genuine nature of my faith? And lastly, is your friendship with Jesus growing? Is your friendship with Jesus growing? Don't miss the importance of this text. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but a friend. The blood-stained cross in the empty tomb declares Jesus is sweet on you. He's sweet on you. We don't talk about that in the church enough. The question is, are you sweet on Jesus? There's a great hymn that captures the beauty of the new covenant and the gospel. And it goes like this. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he's just the same as his lovely name. And that's the reason why I love him so. Is Jesus Jesus the sweetest name you know? Is Jesus the friend you go to most throughout the day? This is the invitation we have. There is good news. Because of Jesus, it's a new day, and there's a new way. And are you hearing the gospel with pin-drop digital clarity this morning? The writer Ezekiel hitchhikes truth with Jeremiah the prophet. In Ezekiel 36, he describes it this way. He says, I will sprinkle water on you, clean water, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. We saw this expressed at our Olathe campus just a couple weeks ago. We saw the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the new covenant manifested before us in the sign of the covenant, a sign of the covenant of baptism. Watch the beauty of this. What a wonderful picture of the new covenant, the sign of the new covenant and baptism. And this morning, we're also going to celebrate another beautiful picture 
of the new covenant as we gather around the Lord's table in response to his grace to us. One of the things I think is important for us to remember as we prepare our hearts for Holy Communion is that Jesus brings the covenantal language as he prepares his disciples to enter into the Feast of Celebration, this Eucharist, this thanksgiving for what Christ will do on the cross. And the Matthew writer says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said to them, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Now notice, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, bless these elements of the bread and the vine as we, your people, your church, your called out ones, the recipient of your gospel, of your grace, gather around your table and celebrate your atoning death on the cross, your glorious resurrection, your future return. And may we do this in remembrance of you and teach us to pray as you taught your disciples to pray. Let us pray our Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus invites all who have placed their trust in him, in faith, as their Lord and Savior to come to a holy communion table near you. There are several stations around our auditorium this morning. Find one close to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome. You don't have to, to come. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community. But it does mean that you know Christ, that you've embraced him as your Savior. And maybe you've not ever done that. And maybe this morning is that first moment to say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need you. Please come transform my life. I trust you and change my, change my heart. And what a wonderful response to that decision this morning to come to the Holy Communion table. So please come, those of you who are ready to come, and enjoy the fellowship of the Lord at this table. Please come.